Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and the Libertarian is Professor Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Making Sense of Immigration Policy. And Richard, I wanted to do this topic today because This is an issue that the Biden administration is pushing on. It was obviously a big part of Donald Trump's message when he ran for president. And it's an issue with so many different angles and and policy considerations. Also, one I'd note where I think we see some of the differences that you sometimes talk about on this between a, a classical liberal like yourself and a pure libertarian. So let me actually start with that contrast, because this factors into the article that you wrote about this for Defining Ideas. Okay, well, let's just start with this in the abstract and then figure out how it applies to um, uh, the immigration question. In the abstract, what a libertarian does is they believe there's a general norm, well nigh universal, which says that there ought to be no use of force or threat of force or no use of fraud or other misrepresentation in social affairs. And nobody denies that these are essential elements to what requires for a just society. Um, If you could have fraud and force being used at free will, solitary, pure, nasty, brutish, and short, as Mr. Hobbes said, would be everybody's lot. The difficulty, of course, with this particular conception is you don't know how it is that you maintain the order if you have no centralized authorities. So libertarians uh, on the Anico tradition are extremely grudging about having taxation, and they're also extremely grudging about having boundaries uh, because their attitude is people have a right to roam the earth in a state of nature, and a state comes along and it puts together this exclusivity. That kind of exclusion is something which is generally indefensible. Most classical liberals would start to say, well, we have to have these boundaries because unless you have that, you cannot organize a state which could supply infrastructure, protection, and a variety of other functions which they regard as more or less centralized. And since you have to supply those functions, you have to figure out how you raise taxes. And since you may need specific resources, you have to develop a program of eminent domain. So the classical liberal is much more comfortable with the fact that they're going to be borders, uh, but they realize that there's a cost to these borders, namely the moment that you stop moving back and forth against uh, cross-property lines or state lines, um, there are going to be huge gains from trade that are going to be lost. And my friend Ilya Suman, when he writes about the right to move and so forth, has always stressed, and rightly so, that people like myself whose families were raised in shtetls, come to the United States, and the difference between being murdered by the Soviets in 1943 and living in America is transcendent relative to anything else that we face. So you have to be very keenly aware of those kinds of limitations. But on the other hand, you have to be aware of the problem moving in the opposite direction. Uh, Can you really take hordes of people coming across borders, some of whom may have aggressive intentions, other of whom may be subject to infections or disease of one kind or another. So it's a constant question of how it is that you create permeable borders, have situations where you let the right people through and keep the wrong people so-called out. And then there's going to be a huge debate as to who is the right kind of person. Do you want to bring people into the United States who are going to make this country richer? Or do you want to provide places where people can get refuge from tyrannical governments elsewhere? Uh, Do you want to let people in who simply want to have better economic opportunities for themselves? So what happens is, given the control that you have over exclusivity, uh, the question of how it is that you decide to relax those particular restrictions on the immigration side 
and then what you do on the citizenship side thereafter is going to be subject to a lot more complexity and uncertainty in a classical liberal universe than it is in a libertarian universe. But the libertarian universe I don't think can work, uh, so you have to have the complexity in order to be able to survive in some form as a nation-state. So you've anticipated a lot of topics there that I, I want us to get into, and I'll sort of take them by turn. I, I want to start. You make a, a provocative argument in the piece, Richard, but you do it very quickly. You do it sort of in passing, and I wondered if we might expand on it here. In the column, you mentioned this period from 1890 to 1914. This is a period of mass immigration in the United States, and one of the proponents of a more liberal immigration policy often point to as a positive example. And here's the sentence in your piece that I'd like to hear you expand upon, where you say that system worked as well as it did in part because the private costs of immigration were sufficiently high. So is it reading you correctly there to say that the easier the act of immigration is, the more restrictive the policy around immigration is going to have to be. I think that's probably correct. Um, for you to come from one of these countries, you had to get airfare. Uh, typically what happened, not airfare, boat fare. I mean, there wasn't planes going there. Uh, you had to get a boat. Then, in fact, you had to break up families. It was very common uh, for a father to go to the United States to live there for three or four years to earn enough money to bring either the wife or the children over, perhaps not even at the same time. Those costs of separation were very, very acute. These people had very, very little money. Uh, but today, suppose you had open borders and somebody said, we are now going to go to Beijing and we'll organize a series of charter flights. And what will happen is we'll send 10 flights out a day, each of which have 400 people in there. And what we will do is we'll spread them around the United States. So within a given month, what we can do under this open immigration system is to send over to this particular country, um, say, 40,000 people. And then everybody else from another country can do it, and they can do it for different months. And somebody's going to say, well, you know, it's going to be very hard for them to get economic opportunities in the United States, and they may face adversity, uh, but the Chinese government or the Brazilian government or the Mexican government is equal to the challenge. And they say, when we put you on this particular airplane, we're also going to give you $10,000. Because we want you out of our country, we want you into their country, and now you can make do for this. And then when you get there, well, where do you live? What do you speak? Do your children get to go to school and so forth? It is very, very difficult to have people come into a country, to subject them to taxation, and to give them no formal voice. And if they don't have a right to vote, what they will do is they will speak in some other ways. They'll testify before committees. They'll send petitions to Washington or whatever it is. And then the effort to try to run a country, we have a constant stream of new New evidence immigrants, all of whom is subsidized perhaps in some way by their own local government, could create a huge degree of uncertainty. You also have the situation, for example, um, at the Mexican border. Um, I don't remember the name of the town that is a sort of the sister, sister city of El Paso, uh, but it's a large city, and if you get you know, large numbers of people crossing that bridge, all of a sudden you have a housing crisis perhaps in a city like El Paso. If you look at any of the crossing gates on the southern border, these are elaborate situations now, all sorts of contraptions. And the question is, how free is your immigration policy going to be? So if somebody comes through and they're sick, uh, can you stop them? If somebody who's carrying contraband, can you stop them? If somebody has a criminal record coming through, can you stop them? Um, so it becomes essentially extremely difficult, I think, to maintain the very sharp position. And then once you start to put this apparatus into place, it's quite clear that wholly apart from people who are kept out because of cause, that is, they have bad attributes associated 
with them. The sheer pressure of numbers is going to create a lot of pressure on our social institutions because in the United States today, there is many, much more public support for people who are in conditions of need. Um, the Jewish immigration, which I know the best, starting in 1881, there was this operation known as highest Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, and all the aid that was given to immigrants coming into the United States of Jewish extraction was done by private parties. Indeed, this continued all the way through the Second World War. There's a wonderful and tragic book by a man named David Wyman called The Abandonment of the Jews, and in it, what he describes is the willingness of the American Jewish community to pay money to the American government to get out every Jewish person from Romania in 1944, and it was turned down. I mean, that was the extent to which this private support was willing to take place. And if you have that, of course, it also makes immigration easier because it's less of a toll on everybody else. So understanding what these background conditions are and then trying to figure out what you do is a tricky thing. I tend to be, notwithstanding the tone of what I've just said, relatively on the pro-immigration side of things. And the one figure I think that's well worth noting is that the United States policies, as awkward and as inconsistent as they may well be, the number of people who are foreign-born in the United States is around 13% today. It was under 5% back in 1970. It's clear that it has made a huge transformation in this country, and most of the immigrants who have come in, I think, have made this a better place. So I'm in favor of trying to keep the current policies, trying to make adjustments with dreamers, uh, have some different responses, I think, to children of illegal aliens and so forth. But this whole thing, in fact, is it's like every time you pull away one layer of the onion, you see two other layers going beneath it. And so if somebody really says, you know, I've got the pat answer to immigration, it means they haven't thought hard enough about the problem. I'm put in mind of two sort of shibboleths about immigration from opposite sides of the debate. The first Milton Friedman famously said, you can't have free immigration in a welfare state. The second, there's not a pithy enough formulation that I'm aware of to attribute to a single individual, but you'll, you'll often hear it said that there's no saving our entitlement systems, what with the demographic makeup of the country, without bringing in new immigrants. So I'd like to hear your thoughts on both of those questions, but also on the logic that both of them spring from, which is that we ought to think of immigration policy sort of as an extension of economic policy. Well, I think both of these things have a certain degree of truth to it. Uh, what Milton Friedman started to say is if you create artificial subsidies in the short run for people coming into the United States, uh, you're going to get more people than you could possibly handle. And what the other position starts to say is if you look at the aging of the American population, uh, it turns out that unless you have a large number of people who are beneath 65 and preferably under 40 or 45, uh, you won't be able to support the safety net for the people at the senior level. Level. So the question is, which of these two forces is more difficult to deal with? My inclination is I think that the welfare component and the increase in the number of people is probably a bigger problem because you have to be certain when they come in that they're actually going to be contributors to the system. And the greater the subsidies, the less likely that's going to be. And in trying to deal with the support system, the other variable that you could change is you could modify Social Security and Medicare in all sorts of ways, and that will start to change the balance. So there is an old expression today, which is uh, the 1950s, uh, somebody who was 50 years old in, say, 1950 is the same health as somebody who's 65 years old. 
today. So 65 is the new 50. What that really means is that retirement need not take place at the same level, and so that the Social Security system and the Medicare system, which were all key to the age of 65, could be ratcheted up although that would take a huge political struggle in order to do it with. But the point is that you, you have to be aware of the fact that these kinds of options are starting to take place. And so the question is, can you figure out a way to undo the uh, uh, internal subsidies uh, so that you don't have to bring in the importation? That is very much an open question. And so I think, in effect, that this just shows to you the contradictory elements of this thing. And I don't think you know, uh, essentially, what it is that you really think to be the appropriate solution to dealing with these problems. So this is just the same point that I made before. You start here, then you open it up. Uh, we could then do another thing. You look at all this stuff and you say, well, is the situation the same in South Texas as it is in North Dakota? Uh, because one of the things that happened is that where the immigrant population moves may make have a huge difference in the way in which there's going to be a response to it. And so there are places that are depopulating in the United States, like Wyoming and so forth, or which have easy capacity for extra people coming in, huge benefits to be gotten from that. In other places, it may not work so well. Uh, one of the arguments that people like Ilya make, which I think has to be respected, is that immigrants are not foolish and they will sort themselves in the places to which they uh, go, and they will not go to the places where they're not welcome, they will not go to places where things are very, very expensive. But even that, there are so many interferences with this economic determination, given zoning laws and everything else that goes on, that you just cannot be confident that when you introduce a huge number of people, all the transitions that are going to take place are going to take place in a way that works out very well. Richard, there is a distinct argument about low-skilled immigration, and people who are in favor of restrictions there will say, look, you bring in computer scientists or physicists or biomedical engineers, that's one thing, but you bring in someone to compete with the high school dropout or the guy with a GED that's another. They are competing with the segment of our domestic-born workforce that has the fewest options in the first place, and they're putting downward pressure on their wages, especially because if the immigrant labor is here illegally, they can undercut the competition. Because if you work off the books, you're not subject to the minimum wage. What, what's your reaction to that line of argument? It's like everything else. It has a certain degree of genuine plausibility to it, but there's also an argument on the other side. Uh, for example, there are many illegal immigrants that work in the grape industry in California or the stone fruit industry in California, and there's very little domestic substitution competition for that uh, because the people who are coming from South America or through Mexico or from Guatemala have a standard of living so much lower that they are willing to do jobs that no American is prepared to take in any wage. And so you never quite know whether you're talking about um, situations where it's a substitution from American labor or a complement to American labor, which then reduces the cost of goods and services to, to everybody else. It's also clear if these people do come in, it's not that they're just direct competitors of certain people. They're also consumers of other people's products. And so what happens is they increase the demand uh, for these goods uh, to the extent that they're here. And then this is, of course, something else that's always involved in this situation. You feel the same way about people who come in for seasonal work and then go home that you do about people who come here permanently. I think they're really very different issues. A seasonable person is not going to worry about voting. They're not going to worry about schools. They're not going to worry about permanent occupation of one place or another. They will tend to be itinerant and they will essentially have temporary quarters on the various farms for which they do their work. And so one of the proposals 
rules is that you don't think of immigration as either come for citizenship but don't come at all. You have them coming for terms of years or terms of months, and that what you do is you give them an easy way to get out and then an easy way to come back in so that they go back and forth across the border. And of course, remember, you know, America in some sense is quote unquote not all that it's cracked up to be. There was a time when the situation in Mexico was very, very bad and we had large numbers of people coming across the border until the recent years the situation got better and it turned out that the number of illegal aliens in the United States uh, it was started to drop in consequence of the fact that things were better at home. So one of the themes I always harp on is that free trade and the ordinary goods and commerce essentially make foreign countries more prosperous, which reduces the pressure on immigration because you can sell goods in the United States without having to give up your friends, your associations, your neighborhoods, and your family, and that people would much rather do that. So uh, strangely enough, I think that free trade is something that anybody who's in favor of handling the immigration threat as they see it uh, should start to support. And that's one of the reasons why I was very much opposed to some of Donald Trump's policies in which he wanted to break supply chains that went across national borders in the illusion that he could then create American jobs when in fact he probably would cost more jobs than he would create by creating inefficient supply chains, which would then reduce the number of people who would work on them and the number of goods and services that would be produced. Final question for you, Richard. It often feels like uh, Americans are being hectored about immigration uh, by people who want a more liberal policy. There can be this assumption that any opposition to absolutely free immigration is about race or culture. But it seems to me that that line of argument misses something really important, which is how improbably successful this country's history with immigrants has been. Hard, hard to think of another example of a country that has managed more or less successfully to synthesize so many different races, so many different cultures. To what do you attribute that? Well, I think to some extent I attribute it to the fact that we had small government during the periods of peak immigration, which meant that you did not have any dislocations in terms of extensive government services or government regulation. If you have a competitive market and people can enter these things freely, uh, they're going to get jobs more quickly than they will if you have immigration subject to restrictions. So, for example, uh, the rather catastrophic situation in Europe when they had large numbers of migrants coming in from the Middle East given the instability, they take them there. They are largely single males, which creates its own set of problems because they're not families. And then you don't give them work permits. It just creates the situation even worse. Uh, so what happens is if you're going to have immigrants come in, you don't want them to sit idle. What you want them to do is to produce it in the economy. And yes, they may cost other people jobs, but that's true when domestic people start to change their employment. But generally speaking, competition may hurt direct competitors, but it's going to improve the overall situation in the United States. And so you have to be careful about listening too much to the direct competitors. Let me just give you one sort of illustration about this. It is very common, as you said, that somebody's in a kind of a low-income job working on an assembly line, say, for $15 an hour, and an immigrant comes in and they take those kinds of jobs, or the jobs get sent overseas. Uh, the argument is always made, and it's incorrect, that if these people didn't come, if those jobs didn't go, we'd still be happily working at $15 an hour in that plant. But there are two other alternatives. One is you'll just shut down. Because if the businesses are the laws, oddly enough, bringing in immigrants reduces the labor cost to the point where you can now 
turn a profit, or it can have an internal migration inside the United States. And so we do not send everybody off to Mexico. Uh, there are many jobs that have systematically moved from Illinois and Wisconsin and Michigan down to places like Tennessee and Mississippi and Alabama. They have right-to-work laws there, which means that plants are willing to invest more, the large companies in them, and they have easier regulations. So you see these huge domestic flows. And that, in effect, is, is a lesson to you. The uh, lesson you want to learn is one that I I think Nikki Haley said one time in a very nice Federalist speech that she gave. She says, look, I wanted to get companies to come in here and to do business in South Carolina. I can't do anything to make things better or worse elsewhere, but what I can do is reduce the cost of establishing a new business in this state so that foreign companies will want to invest. And then she referred to several major Michelin plants that have been built in South Carolina. Carolina because she had improved the local environment. And so essentially, if you start taking the free trade situation, instead of trying to keep people out, instead of trying to bash everybody, what you say is like, maybe there's something wrong with what we're doing, and then you reform your system. And if you look at a state like Illinois and a state like New York and a state like California, the places that make this the largest crowd are the places that have the worst business environment by rated by any independent party. I mean, Gavin Newsom may say California is a great place to do business, but all the people moving to Texas have a rather different idea about that. So one of the advantages of free immigration and of free trade is that it forces people to get their domestic house in order, and places that are athletic, arthritic, and they're ridden by unions and special interests and high taxes are going to have to change to survive. And that's why, oddly enough, progressives are of two minds on this stuff, uh, because they know if the immigration comes, they won't be able to keep their vaunted structures in these critical states. And yet if it comes out, then what they're doing is they're betraying their, their ethnic majority groups and so forth. So it's like everything else you've asked me. On the one hand, on the other hand, Milton Friedman says this, the people who are worried about old age say that. Immigration is hard because all of these things have to come together at the same time. And when you have this on top of the political dimension, it makes it very, very difficult to go. My solution, quote, is you try to pick off the low-hanging fruit, dreamers, for example. You try to slowly expand the population that comes in. You don't do anything which is discontinuous, which may generate either a, disc- a calamity or a backlash of one form or another. We've done pretty well on the immigration front, all things considered. And if we open up the valves a little bit more in a sensible way, I think we can do even better. That would be, I think, the way in which I would want to go. Whether that makes me a Democrat or Republican, I don't know. And frankly, I don't much care. You've been listening to The Libertarian Podcast with Richard Epstein. Remember, you can read Richard's column, The Libertarian, at Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And if you enjoy the podcast, please rate the show on iTunes or wherever you listen. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.